welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, everybody. Um, could someone please close the, the door back there? Thanks. <clears throat> okay. Before the meeting starts, um, could we ask someone to keep the time? But we're not sure what time what the time would be. You do? Okay, never mind. Never mind. Um, reminder, before we start, please make sure that your cell phones are turned to silent or turned off. Will those who care to join us in a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Hi, my name is Barbara, and John, we're your leaders for tonight's meeting. As well as? As well as? I'm Annette. And I'm Dave. Okay. Would someone please read the Ethanon Welcome? I guess I'll read the Newcomer Welcome. Uh, Newcomer Welcome, we would like to welcome you to our meeting. Our ex- Is this the right reading, Newcomer reading? Our experience suggests that it would be best for you to attend at least six meetings before deciding if this program is for you. The steps or topic that we share during this program may not resonate with you, but as you become familiar with the program, you'll find that each step contains a very special gift. Each person works the program at their own pace. Some of us have shared the reason that brought us here. Others asked questions and others did nothing. After the meeting, if you wish, you can request information from the people present at the meeting, that is, their phone or email address. To maintain contact outside the meeting, feel confident that we are happy to talk with you. Here's the actual um, welcome for the couples meeting. We welcome you to this couples meeting and hope that in this fellowship you will find the help and friendship that we have been privileged to enjoy. We were like you. We would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. We too were lonely and frustrated, but here we have found that there's no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. The SNN family groups consist of relatives and friends of sexaholics who realize that by banding together, they can better solve their common problems. We urge you, urge you to try our program. Without spiritual help, living with or having lived with a sexaholic is too much for most of us. We become nervous, irritable, and unreasonable. Our thinking becomes confused, and our perspective becomes distorted. Rarely have we seen a person who has not greatly benefited by working the SNN program. The 12 steps of Essanon 
which we try to follow are not easy. At first, we may think some of them are unnecessary. Unnecessary. But if we're honest, open-minded, and willing to apply the principles of the 12 steps to our lives, we find the benefits can be limitless, including God's gift of serenity. Here's an excerpt from Recovering Together, Issues Faced by Couples. And I'd like to see if maybe um, Annette can read the, that little excerpt there. Okay. Recovering Together, Issues Faced by Couples. Um, when we began, began our recovery, many of us in a committed relationship with a sexaholic were doubtful that it would be possible or even desirable to continue the relationship. Some of us were afraid that the individual recovery would mean our relationships would suffer, while others were eager to end relationships. Some of us felt paralyzed by fear of the unknown after years of feeling in control. Others were numb, depressed, and frustrated. Many of us felt overwhelmed with anger and pain and wanted to strike back. We thought we could never forgive our partners, and we were not even sure we wanted to forgive them. Many of us felt used, abused, and mistreated, and we wondered if we should even try to build, rebuild trust and intimacy given the failed attempts of the past. We simply did not believe that our partners or we could change enough to make any real difference. It is clear that some relationships do not survive. It is also clear that a great deal of commitment is required by both partners if the problems caused by sexaholism and the family's reactions to it are to be overcome. But experience has shown that we can overcome our initial fears, misgivings, and problems. Today, through using the tools of the program, many of us are happier in our relationships than we ever imagined possible, achieving levels of intimacy we only hoped for previously. In Essanon, we learn that we need to concentrate on our recovery and keep the focus on ourselves. But how does that fit with learning new ways of being together so that the relationship can heal? Recovering in a relationship presents us with a variety of issues. Isn't it irrational to trust a person who has proven untrustworthy? How can we communicate honestly with each other when we haven't for so long? Can our sexual relationship ever be a joyful and fulfilling expression of our commitment to one another? We thought we were committed, but how long should we wait for real change to occur? We want to emphasize that while the meetings are extremely helpful, they are not a prerequisite within the relationship. What does seem to be necessary are honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness on the part of both partners to work on themselves and on the relationship. Thanks, Annette. Okay. Now we'll introduce the topic, and we'll each share our own experience, strength, and hope for about five minutes apiece. And I'm going to ask for a volunteer to go first. Oh, I'm sorry. The topic is um, commitment in the relationship. What does it mean? to us, and the relationship is our marriage. What do you want us to start? Hi, I'm Annette. We were told that the focus of this meeting was a little bit different, so what we prepared is not exactly what they're talking about, but I think it's relevant anyway. Um, 
You know, I'm, I'm going to read the page from Reflections of Hope that they said we should, you know, plan the meeting around, and that maybe will make what we say have a little bit of sense. And it's page 114 in Reflections of Hope, Grieved for the Relationship. When I first came to Essanon, I grieved for the relationship I thought I had with the sexaholic. I felt the deep, painful emotions of loss. With the help of the Essanon program, I came to see the reality that my relationship with the sexaholic was different than I believed it was. I also grieved when I realized my relationships with family and friends had been affected by sexaholism and that I had distorted the reality of those relationships too. With help from my sponsor and through working the steps, I grieved all those losses. The process of grieving, working the program, and trusting my higher power gave me the opportunity to take an honest look at what I had been trying so hard to run away from, true intimacy with myself and others. I am now able to be honest, which in turn is helping to heal all my relationships. By devoting ourselves to 12-step recovery, we begin to practice true intimacy. When we let people know who we truly are and share the pain of our grief, we learn that we are not alone and that others love us for who we are. This is one of the miracles awaiting us in recovery. Further Reflections As we begin to devote ourselves to 12-step recovery, an amazing thing takes place. We let our hardships and problems become our teachers, and we become grateful for the lessons they teach us. We learn we are not alone in facing the problem of sexaholism. And that's from the Ethanon 12 Steps, page 3. Um, so, am I going to share first? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so letting go of my fantasy of what, my, what I thought my marriage was, grieving the loss and beginning to live in reality one day at a time was really hard for me because when I found out what was going on, I realized that everything I'd been living through our whole married life was a lie. I was on one page and he was on another page. And I thought we were in sync. Silly me. Um, so there's no more butterflies, no more unicorns, as someone said in a meeting earlier today. And just reality and it bites. And I really didn't like who I was and who he was and I didn't know what to do. And one day at a time, I mean, we'd already been in the program quite a while when a lot of other stuff happened. So it's not like we were brand new. We had all the tools. It's just that um, I thought I was using them one way. He was using them a different way. And um, it took us a while to rebuild trust, to begin to believe that there was a future for me, for us, and to begin to trust that we were supposed to be together, to trust him, to trust myself, um, to trust in my higher power, the only trust I hadn't lost. Um, and, you know, we, um, when you find true intimacy, which I hadn't really thought about because intimacy was sex, and if we had sex, I thought everything was all right, but we won't go there. So anyway, um, finding true intimacy would be to be comfortable in my own skin and to be comfortable with him and to finally feel like we were on the same page and to um, become not only lovers and not only a married couple, but to become friends again. Before we 
got engaged before anything we got married or any, had kids or anything else, we were friends. And I wasn't treating him the way I treated my friends because I was very angry at him. I'm not angry at my friends. And when I started to treat him the way that I treated my friends, things got better. And so, as I always, I mean, we're finally living, I think, as as far as I know today, happily ever after, one day at a time, and love is a daily decision. Every morning, I decide all over again that I love this man, and I want to spend the rest of my life with him. And I don't have to like him 24-7, but I do need to love him, and that, that's what keeps me going and keeps me happy. And um, we are survivors. We have stayed for the miracle, and I don't want to think that that's the only miracles we're going to get. I want another miracle. So we're sticking around. I'm sticking around. So thank you for letting me share. Thanks, Annette. I'm Dave. Um, my wife and I have known each other since second grade. Um, some of you already know that. Um, we um, did not like each other when we were younger, in grade school. Um, began dating when we were seniors, and all of that is a whole different story. Um, I have become, I have been a sexaholic since I was very young. Um, I look back and um, at my life and my imagination and my thoughts when I was a little kid, <clears throat> and they are, I thought, they were different from everybody else's. Um, as I've lived in SA for 20 or so years, I find that there are a lot of other addicts in the room who started out when I did, very young. Um, but for a long time, I thought I was alone in that. So I had to stay hidden. I had to not share anything about what I thought, what I felt, what I imagined about um, sex and sexuality. And that was certainly not healthy for for us. Um, but as I said, when we were in high school, we began dating. Everything was happy, joyous, and free, <clears throat> even though I was acting out on the side. But that was that was off to the side. Um, eventually, it just everything just crashed. Um, as Annette said, it was. The harder crash was after we'd been in program for a while. Um, I ended up here in Texas. Uh, we live in Southern California. I ended up here in Texas in a federal facility for a couple of years as a result of this disease. Um, by that time, by the time I went to prison, our relationship had become a lot better than it had been for a while. Um, it wasn't fixed but it was better. Um, after that adventure, um, I made it home. We, we actually drove home together from, from Texas. And in that three-day drive, we got to know each other 
kind of all over again. It was it was a special time. And we got home on a Saturday afternoon and I went back to my home meeting that night because I knew that's where I belonged. I had to get back to meetings. Um, but there's a lot of pain in the background. One of my worst enemies is not being able to forgive myself. My brain can go places that are dark and unforgiving. And I have to learn almost over and over that that is the past, that I can forgive myself. And with the help of everybody in this room, I do that. Um, not always easy, but I'm able to. Um, so hopefully we can give you some thoughts and ideas today that will help you on your journey. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Uh, not to interrupt, but there will be questions taken through the Ask It basket, which is going around the room. Thank you. If we don't have questions, you'll be listening to us a lot longer than you may want to. Okay, I guess I'll share next. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of background. Um, I met my husband when we were 15, and um, we started dating, and we had a lot of fun. He made me laugh. He was he was a really nice guy, and um, eventually we ended up getting married, and uh, it was a week after, or I think it was just less than a week after we got back from our honeymoon, um, I discovered a stash of pornography, not a stash, it wasn't stashed, it was a suitcase full um, that he hadn't unpacked yet. So um, I knew right away that there was a problem and, you know, it, it was never really addressed. I was never able to share appropriately how it made me feel. All I did was cry and, you know, try to shame him and um, take the blame for his acting out. And fast forward to 10 years of marriage, I saw a therapist who told me his behavior was normal. And then another 10 years, I saw a different therapist who said the same exact thing. So um, needless to say, I love the man, and yet I felt trapped living with this disease. So I ended up hanging in there <clears throat> for 31 years, and then... Something happened, and I, I realized the extent of the disease, how it had escalated over the years. Um, and I gave him a, I gave him an ultimatum that if he didn't get help, the marriage was going to be over. So um, he did. He found a really good therapist that uh, we see together and individually when we need to. And she's really helped us a lot, gearing us towards our own recoveries initially and then, you know, trying to work on staying married, which is not always easy, but um, definitely worth it. So I jotted down some, um, some notes about what it means for me to really be committed to John. Um, I think first and foremost, I needed to know that he was as committed 
to working together. I needed to make sure that he loved me enough to want to stay in the marriage. He said he did and does, and, you know, we are continuing to work on ourselves and our, our relationship. We both had to be willing, um, and we both need to go to any lengths it will take to continue to work on the, the relationship. We need to be able to hear each other and understand the other's point of view, which is not always easy. Um, sometimes I, I feel like he's he's speaking a different language. You know, he'll say something, and I'll just like react to it, and I just don't get anywhere with that. Um, I need to... We, we had to set some boundaries about where we could go and where we couldn't go. Um, we no longer go to a bar, any kind of bars, because I don't feel comfortable there because, you know, sometimes I feel like he's distracted and then I'm not working my program. I'm focusing on what he's, you know, how he's distracted so that doesn't really get us anywhere. So we do communicate now before we do anything. You know, do you think this is going to be a problem? So I feel like we're working together in that in that respect. We need to be present for each other. We're actually doing these um, check-ins with each other twice a week when we remember. Um, but that's very helpful. It keeps me honest and it keeps me from letting anger and resentment build up because I, it's a safe environment and we get to talk about what we're struggling with or not struggling with. We can express gratitude or affirm each other. Um, because we are emotionally connected now, we have a romantic and emotional and sexual relationship that we've never ever had before. And to me, that is a true expression of our love and our commitment to the marriage and each other. Thanks. Hi, I'm John P. I'm a recovering sexaholic. And, uh, thanks for being here to listen to my drivel. Um, my Russian friend in program says I have black belt in marriage. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, you know, I, I learned a lot about being married. I didn't know anything about being married. I was, I was non-functional in the marriage pretty much for 30 years uh, until I came into program. Uh, I didn't want to do the work. Didn't want to do the work that a partnership demands. Didn't want to be honest. Didn't want to be present. I uh, wanted to do what I wanted to do. All the classic traits of a narcissist and a sexaholic. That's what I exhibited. Um, when I came in a program, um, I thought, just like other people, hey, everything's going to be great now, right? You know everything that happened and we're going to be happy now, right? <laughs> Anyone else out there come into program and everything went really well? <laughs> I didn't think so. Uh, things got really bad, uh, worse than they were before I came into program. And um, I, for the life of me, I couldn't understand it. I do now. Um, but some of the things I've learned, um, 
can very well be summed up in uh, our white book. Uh, there's a section on page, starts on page 149 called Just the Beginning. And in there he talks about the fact that he had been coming to meetings, going to program, changing his behavior, doing everything right, and his marriage was dissolving before his very eyes. Um, he couldn't stand the pain he saw in his wife's eyes. Um, he was angry. He was frustrated. Um, and he felt like he couldn't make any headway. And I found myself in exactly that same situation. And there were some magic words for me in there. And the words were that when I was wrong, to promptly admit it and shut up. That was the hard part, to shut up. Because I'm a big, you know, i got to defend myself, got to defend my reputation. It didn't really do anything except make the situation worse. And that was the beginning of things getting better. Um, I'm grateful to say, because of all the things Barbara just mentioned, we are doing really well now. And, and that's only because of a lot of different things. Um, therapy is a big part for us. Not for everybody, but therapy for us was a big part of that. I could tell you from program what I should not do, but I did not understand why I wanted to do the wrong thing. And the therapist helped me understand that, and understanding that helped me to stop doing it, helped me. Um, I learned I have to live my sobriety every day. I have to walk the talk. I can't, I, I just have to... I have to change my attitudes. I have to change my actions more than anything because as Barbara learned through painful experience, I lied through my teeth every which way possible for 30 plus years of our marriage and my word meant nothing anymore. Uh, I had to show her, in fact, that things had changed. That was the only thing that mattered. Um, I needed to have three things. They, they talk about this in program, HOW, honesty, openness, and willingness, um, mostly willingness. Um, I, I tell my sponsees when they come in if they're married, I say, you, you think you have one problem, you have two. You have two, I tell them, piles of doo-doo in your hand. One of them is your life, which you've made a pile, and the other pile is your marriage. Because whether you like to admit it or not, you're going to have to do the same or more work in your marriage as you do on yourself because that's, that's a flaming mess right there, and it's going to take all the effort you could possibly put together. Uh, I have to be open with Barbara. I have to be willing to change. Uh, if I, and, I, and I was resistant at first, uh, but then when I saw that, you know, doing that got me less than nowhere, um, you know, I learned higher power had a message for me too. Um, and lastly, I have to treat her like a partner. That's something that, I had not done. Um, asking permission, communicating regularly, uh, talking about how I feel, uh, treating her with respect, all those things I had to learn at age 50. So it wasn't easy, you know, isn't easy for any of us here. I know many of you are going through the same thing. I am here to tell you there is hope. Uh, the four of us can tell you there is hope. So that's all I have to share. Thanks. Okay, here's a question for Barbara. Oops, sorry. Um, what awareness do
did you have of the impact of the of the suitcase of porn and lust in general on your intimacy in every sense of the word. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'm not over it completely. Um, it hurt a lot. Um, there, there was... The first time I discovered, well, I saw that, and I, I just, I was confused initially, and I asked him, um, you know, what is this? Oh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I took it from my house. I'll, I'll get rid of it. Well, he never really got rid of it. He just stashed them all over the place. Um, and each time he lied when I would find another one, um, that began to really eat away at me because I kept wondering, what's wrong with me? You know, why why does he do this? And um, one time he left me in bed, a brand new bride, to go act out, and um, that hurt more than anything. And I didn't have I didn't have the language to articulate to him how deeply it hurt. And it's it's only now, you know, we're we're in program for a long, long time. It's just now after going for so much therapy that I am good enough. I look okay, you know. I am a really good person. It wasn't about me. It never really was about me. He was the addict before he even knew me. So, um, so that's the impact, and it still hurts, but yet. I'm not sobbing, you know, at least I can say say it out loud right now. So thanks for the question. It was a really good one. Okay, um, I have two questions that are asking almost the same thing, so I'm going to try to answer them together. It says, to the Essanons, how do you trust him again? Does the fear of a repeated betrayal and lingering mistrust ever go away? How do you rebuild trust after she feels that she will never recover trust again? Um, I had a really hard time. I really did. And the hardest part was I had to forgive him. And I didn't want to forgive him. And furthermore, I had all these expectations of him groveling at my feet getting tears all over my shoes and begging me to forgive him. That never happened. And I realize now that would have been demeaning for him and and shameful for me to even expect it. Um, But it's a daily thing to try to recover trust. And it takes time. This situation, whatever your situation is, didn't get that way overnight. And it's not going to get fixed overnight. It took years to get you into this program, and it's going to take years to get us out, (laughs) our whole lives. But still, um, I had to trust my higher power. I had to realize that if more was going to be revealed, it would be revealed to me when and if I could handle it. Just like everything, the original finding out everything was revealed at a time, in retrospect, that I could handle it. Um, and 
I don't mean that I ignore anything. If I saw a red flag or if there's something strange going on, it would be, I would definitely say something about it. I wouldn't let it go on for years like I did before. But I do believe that if I'm going to find something, I don't have to dig for it. It's going to jump out in front of me, literally, figuratively, physically, whatever. Um, and the other thing is that I forgot. Um, was it? Uh, that he is doing his part to help me rebuild trust in him. And you know what he said to me one day? He said, he didn't trust me either. Blew me away. Am I trustworthy? Look at this face. But, <laughs> but he didn't trust me either, which was maybe one of the most honest things he ever said to me. So um, that's that's the thing. When he says he's going to the gym, he comes back in a timely manner. When he is going to buy gas, he comes back. Um, before, I never knew if he was go going to come back on time or what was going on or where he might be, and I used to worry about it. Now, the only thing is if he's not by back by dark, maybe I'm going to think maybe he's in trouble. But we have cell phones for that. So that helps a lot of the worry. Um, if I texted him repeatedly and he didn't respond, then I don't know what I'd do. We only have one car, and he's probably out in it. But, I mean, he, he does his part. When I ask him to do something, he does it. He doesn't say, okay, and then not do it. He is helping me to trust that he will follow through on little things, and then I have to hope that the big things will follow. So, thank you. Do you want to say something? Hi. I just want to add one more thing to, to what Annette said. Um, <clears throat> Trust your gut. If your gut is telling you something's wrong, there's something wrong. You don't have to snoop. Your higher power is going to present it to you. Um, I never, ever was a snooper, and I just kept getting messages all over the place. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to take another question. Uh, how did you rebuild or build your emotional and sexual intimacy? Slowly, <laughs> um, and, and and that that was a painful thing to learn. First of all, that this was not a small thing to be overcome by a quick "I'm sorry." Uh, it was also part of that was understanding at depth and feeling at depth that I had hurt Barbara for thirty years, multiple times at different levels, in different ways, over and over and over again. I spent 30 years denying that fact, lying to myself. So how do I change that? I, well, again, with a lot of time, what do I do during that time? You'll notice in the literature it talks about taking the actions of love, not making love or all that other stuff. It's taking the actions of love. And the actions of love for me include little things like making the coffee, putting out the coffee cups, you know, whatever it might be, um, you know, to let her know that I'm thinking of her, that she's important to me, communicating more. Um, we just filled out these forms for St. Louis for the convention. Now, 20 years ago, I would have filled out the form for her and put it in. I didn't do that. I grabbed the form. I filled out what I knew was appropriate, and the rest of it I gave to her. What email address would you like on here? What would you like it to say on your name tag? 
Okay, that sounds like a little thing, and it and it probably is. But to a recovering sexaholic in a recovering relationship, that's a little building block. Okay, and there's a thousand of those every day that you can do in your relationship. That's the stuff that matters. It's not the big grandiose buying flowers and you know balloons and whatever else you might do to have a spectacular celebration. It's the little things that really counted for us. Thanks. Um, does Dave have one? Dave have one? Okay. Um, yeah, he's got this one. Um, no, here's this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, this one, this is just my own judgment. This says couples therapy, pros and cons. What should we expect? Um, I think this is an outside issue, and if if therapy works for you, do it. If it's not working for you, change therapists or do something else. But, I mean, we don't really have an opinion um, on that as an outside issue. Essanon does not recommend or have any opinion on, on therapy. Um, you can talk to other people after and they might tell you if, if, you know, if it's helped them or not. But I don't think that's appropriate for us to answer here. I have another question here, uh, and it's rather broad. Why aren't there more couples meetings? And I'm not sure if the person who's asking is talking about this weekend or about couples meetings in general. Um, in Southern California, we have um, one pretty much regular couples meeting spread across, I believe, three counties. And we meet every couple of weeks, but we at people's homes and we, um, a group of anywhere from 10 to 15 of a, couples get together at, other, at one another's homes when we can. Um, as far as if you would like to see more couples meetings at conventions, just let somebody know. Thanks, Dave. Um, we, we also have one in the Inland Empire, and that one's kind of separate because it's a pretty long drive. But, um, you know, there is a lovely little orange book out there available on the Ethanon literature table if you want to purchase one, and it gives you the format for hosting a couple's meeting. And um, all you need is two couples. So um, think about it. Um, Thanks, Annette. Um, I have two questions here that are pretty similar. Um, one starts off, your spouse completely changed in recovery and is a different person. You're completely different. Um, basically, question is, why do you want to be married? And then another one um, is the same thing. Why didn't you, and this is for both um, Annette and for me, why didn't you divorce your husband after years of harm, cheating, and acting out? Um, I never divorced him because I had we had three children and I didn't want them to grow up without a dad. I was afraid, full of fear. I didn't want to be alone. And I kept, honestly, kept hoping that he was just going to grow up one day, but he never really did. I mean, he got taller and bigger, but he never really outgrew the juvenile um, behavior. And the bottom line is, 
uh, the, the the reason I stayed with him today is I love him. I never ever stopped loving him. I hated him at times, but I've always loved him. He is the man I married. He's got a heart of gold. He loves me. He loves our family. So, and why would I want to start all over again? I've been. I put a lot of work into him, you know. Like, really? Do I want to go out and find another guy? <laughs> uh, just, just to add, uh, the short answer to that question is not the one you just heard. The short answer that she gives people is because the rocks in my head fit the holes in his head. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Annette. Um, first and foremost, I never divorced him because I don't believe in divorce. I do believe in murder. <laughs> and neither of us is getting out of this alive. I mean, <laughs> so he stuck with me, and I think he knew that all along. But seriously, um, I really thought that there was hope, um, mostly because I thought I could change him. I could fix him so he wouldn't be that way anymore, and then we could live happily ever after. That was the end of all my sentences, and then we can live happily ever after. But um, when we did start in this program, he did admit to um, needing it and agreed to go, and you can, um, you know, lead an addict to meetings, but it doesn't necessarily make them sober. I found that out too. However, um, things improved after there was some disclosure, and we had too much history. We were too enmeshed to think about living alone financially, um, emotionally, everything. We had five children who were mostly grown by the time that this hit the fan. Um, but they did grow up with it, even though they didn't know what was going on. Um, there were other things that were more obvious that were dysfunctional in our in our family. So um, we, um, I thought there was hope. I mean, I and as Barbara said, I didn't want to start over with another one and have to get him fixed. I thought this guy was almost the way I wanted him to be. There were so many things about him that I did love. He is a really good person. He was a wonderful father. He, you know, could be a wonderful husband. And um, furthermore, I didn't want anyone to know that I failed, that I was a failure at marriage. I didn't have any self-esteem anyway, and I couldn't handle that. But if it had come down to it, I would have done something, and maybe it wouldn't have been good for him. But no, but seriously, I'm I'm, I'm being very facetious now. But seriously, I um, serious thoughts of divorce very seldom crossed my mind through the whole thing, and I knew that if we could get through everything that happened, that we had a good chance. If we survived all that happened, we had a really good chance of living happily ever after. Thank you. Thanks, Annette. Um, this kind of gets back to that last question about couples meetings. One of the things that really helped us was getting together with other couples, hearing what other couples have done to tighten the bonds within their relationship. 
Um, if you don't have couples meetings in your area, as she said, there's a pamphlet out there. And like many places where there's only one or two meetings for essays or one meeting for essanons and you want another one, somebody's going to have to step up and start it. So there is there are resources out there to help you get started. As I said, the the one thing the, the I think looking back, the strongest part of us getting back together was starting to go to couples meetings. And I didn't want to go. I didn't know what she was going to say to, about me in the front of uh, in front of other people. But once I got started, that fear melted away, and it became not only really a, a powerful learning experience, um, but also a, a real social event where you can be with people who are safe. You can be, you can tell these people anything, and know that it's not going to get outside the door. Um, so, buy the pamphlet. <laughs> okay, a couple of uh, questions about the kids, the impact, um, and, and how to handle some of those aspects. Is it better for the children to grow up, grow up with a sick or recovering father or not, sick slash recovering father or not one at all? Um, I'll answer that and then throw it open, but um, our kids were adults, uh, all of them over 21 when we disclosed to them. Um, we, we felt, um, you know, I don't know what the decision would have been if they were still in the house. Uh, our, our one son was still halfway in the house, but he was an adult. And we did not disclose to them immediately. Uh, we didn't have to face this question, I guess is what I'm saying. We did have to face disclosure. And I'm going to answer this second question by, I'll read it first and then jump to that. Um, how do you reveal your membership in SA to your children when the only improper sexual behavior they knew about happened 35 years ago? Um, well, when it was time for disclosure, it was prompted by a, um, a rift that my daughter initiated between her and Barbara. And it betrayed a huge problem. And the problem that was opened up was that she was blaming Barbara for how she ended up with emotional problems because of the way she was raised. And as our therapist said, she's saying that because she doesn't have that big piece of the puzzle of John's uh, sexaholism. So after a lot of uh, soul-searching and so on, we both agreed it was time. And we set out on a process of disclosing. I worked with my sponsor and disclosed to all of the three children separately and individually. And um, they knew. I mean, if you think your kids don't know, <laughs> you are really lying to yourself because they know. They may not know the specifics. They know something's wrong because whatever happens between us when they're living in the house happens to them. And it helped them. Uh, it was helpful for them to answer some questions for themselves. They didn't understand some things. As I said, one of them thought that 
you know, Barbara was Mrs. Crazy Pants and I was the sweetheart dad of the year. And, you know, I had to set her straight. And, and I had to do it. I had to do it in her therapist's office. I had to pay for the session and I had to convince the therapist to let me do it. It was amazing. I, I never would have thought, but that's what had to be done. Uh, and we did it. And she was supported and it was helpful. And she's now, and this is some years since, and I'm talking a decade since or more, uh, she is now getting healthier. Um, that was a big part of her issue, but it wasn't all of it. My two sons were, ah, dad, you know, that's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry about a thing. And, and again, I had to be proactive and say, no, it, you can't dismiss this, and this is why you can't dismiss it, because I want you to understand the pain that I caused. I did not want to say that to my son. did not want to face him and do that. But they deserved to hear it, and they handled it beautifully. I never felt more love than I did when I disclosed to them. So that's all I got. Thanks. Thanks, John. Okay, here's a question. Um, did you start to feel better about your relationship when you were both in recovery? Does it get better as time passes on, and are the triggers less often? The first part of the question I'm going to answer honestly, and you're probably not going to want to hear it, but um, it got better for just a very short amount of time, and then it got really bad. And I think it got really bad because early in recovery, I just started to feel the emotions. I felt the real impact, and I felt the anger. There was anger directed at John, but there was also a lot of anger towards myself. Like, why did I put up with this unacceptable behavior for so long? You know, I just, there was a lot of anger. That has gotten better between therapy and um, and coming to meetings and couples meetings. Um, it does get better. And the triggers, I don't think the triggers ever go away completely. Um, I don't get triggered as often because we're able to communicate things to each other. Now I can say, I really don't want to do this because it's, it's not a good situation. For instance, we're in Florida for um, the winter, and I love the beach. He loves the beach. And we go walking on the beach, but we set a limit. We will only go like before 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, and that makes me feel safe and he feels comfortable too. So, um, but yeah, the triggers are there. Um, sometimes I can just let it go and recognize it's just a trigger. It's not anything John is doing. It's just something he's doing is just bringing back old memories for me. So, thanks. Um, as far as the kids are concerned, our kids knew nothing about this program at all. They knew that we were attending uh, another two 12-step programs, and they thought that was great, but they had no idea about these. It wasn't until Dave was sentenced that we called them each, starting with the oldest, we have five, um, on the landline so we could both be on it so they would know that it was coming from both of us. And they're hmm? all yeah, yeah, they were all, yeah, all, all adults. Um, and let them know and ask them not to talk to their siblings until we had notified all of them and then we called them back to, you know, that one first. <laughs> okay, you can talk now. But, um, it, they were so much more supportive than I thought they could possibly be. 
Um, they didn't ask a whole lot of questions. We tried to, you know, explain it well enough. And they were completely supportive of me the whole time that he was gone. It's another whole long story um, as to how I had to grow up all of a sudden living alone for the first time in my life with cats, and <laughs> which helps a lot. Um, you know, a full-time job in a house and praying that nothing would break or that the roof wouldn't leak and all that other kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, they they were wonderful to us and, and to me and to him. So um, we were blessed. We must have done something right in the midst of all the other craziness. We must have done something right. Um, so that was with the kids. But every situation is different. You, you know, you have to figure out the emotional maturity, the age, everything else. Um, I think they probably knew there was something going on. They didn't know what. Um, uh, uh, there was also something about triggers. Um, I used to get triggered all the time. And, I mean, it was like if I opened my eyes, I was triggered. And part of it is my defective character of being judgmental. I can be judgmental of anyone and anybody in a heartbeat and um, that's another whole meeting. But um, I have tried very hard, I pray every day, to be relieved of judgmentalness, and the triggers are all part of that. So if I don't allow things to trigger me, I mean, if it, triggers happen. They're neither right or wrong. They're like a feeling. They're neither right or wrong. A trigger just happens. Um, but it's what I do with it. Do I wallow in it or do I let it go or do I change the subject or do I walk away? Um, and the triggers are mine. They're, they're not him doing anything at all to trigger me. He's not even there and I can be triggered. So um, that's what I have to work on for myself. If I found there was any, um, any, like if I had a gut feeling about something, that would be completely different. But no, triggers are a fact of life. They just get a little bit maybe less as time goes on. Time heals a lot of stuff. We have one more question. Um, um, he wants to share. He can share. We have a okay, question. We have, one, question. we have one more. As far as our kids go, um, as Annette said, they, we, they were all adults. We let them know individually uh, that I had been sentenced, and um, we asked him at that time not to, to tell their kids. Uh, we had a bunch of grandkids at the time. Some of the grandkids were older, some were younger. Um, eventually, since I had been go gone for a couple of years and, and not going to the family parties and things, there were some questions asked. What, the, what we told the grandkids was that I was working out of state. Um, and I did work. I worked in the dining room. Uh, but eventually they, uh, one of our older granddaughters um, started doing some uh, internet snooping and found me uh, in Texas. Um, <clears throat> what really ticked her off was that she was living in Abilene at the time, and I was just outside of Dallas. So she was more ticked off that I was in Texas and could have been visited than the fact that I was actually there. That didn't seem to bother her as much. Um, we were, as Annette said too, fully supported by our kids and eventually our grandkids when they found out about it. I remember getting home 
Um, we had a gathering at my daughter's house, um, and uh, my one of my grandsons was dating a young woman who um, he felt very serious about, and they didn't have any secrets, so she knew that Grandpa had committed a crime and had been in prison, and uh, it still gets me. We went to that house for a family get-together a day or two after I got home, and this girl came up to me and said, Welcome home, Grandpa. It was uh, a feeling of total acceptance. And she wasn't even a family member, but that's how fortunate we are. Um, the family has grown quite a bit since then, uh, and that's a whole other story as well. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. Just a note, uh, someone named Daniel filled out a card talking about an Essanon couples meeting they do via Skype. Please see us, see yeah. me or my wife after yeah. the or, or meeting. Us. Yeah, yeah we'll, after we'll be happy to talk to you. Talk to you about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you have a last question. Do we, okay. Do we want to do this one as last question very quickly? Or? Oh, oh, I was going to do this one. Um, did you experience a period? Did you or you did you experience a period when your spouse was technically sober but not emotionally sober, like a dry drunk? If so, how long did that go on, and how did he eventually find authentic recovery? Um, that happened pretty much last year. Um, I could tell by the way. John was treating me. He was being disrespect, disrespectful and um, resentful, and I couldn't put my finger on it. But I knew, you know, he wasn't something wasn't right, and so um, I put up with it for as long as I could, and then gave him an ultimatum again. And he did start to go back to the therapist by himself, and he figured out what was going on. And since then, I think life has gotten much better than it was even before that um, for the two of us. So, thanks. Do you want to talk to that? Should we wrap it up? No, I don't think we will. No, we don't have anything to say about that. Okay. Thank you. All right. Do you want to do the closing reminder? Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We'll be available for questions. sharing again that we do not have the answers. We only have our experience, strength, and hope. This is an anonymous program. We ask all our members to respect anonymity, that stories you hear here should not be repeated outside this meeting, including to spouses or family members. The stories we hear here should not be repeated outside. They are told to help better understand the program and ourselves and to give encouragement and help to the newcomers so we can keep what we have been given. Okay, um, maybe we could just uh, close, join hands if possible, and close with the serenity prayer.
I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.